You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Uh, all right. Uh, good afternoon. Very welcome to the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. My name is Martin Krog. I'm the head of the Russia and Eurasia program here with the Institute. And it's my great pleasure to welcome all of you, uh, the audience, the panelists, to the seminar Ukraine after the elections. As you're all aware, uh, earlier this year, Ukraine elected a new president, a relatively unknown, well, politically unknown entity, uh, Zelensky. Uh, and there are a lot of expectations, but uh, a lot of question marks. And anyhow, he was able to secure a majority in the parliamentary, elect, uh, parliamentary elections that were held uh, earlier this, uh, this summer. And uh, we are now seeing uh, political uh, reforms being debated uh, actively and uh, legislation being put forward. At the same time, Ukraine is uh, confronted with the challenges of the military situation, the security situation, uh, but also the pressures for economic reform and anti-corruption policies. And with us today uh, to discuss these formidable questions, we have an excellent panel. Uh, Katya Gorchinskaya, who is a well-known Ukrainian journalist uh, uh, and uh, currently writing for, well, we see your name often in the international and the Ukrainian media, uh, including The Guardian, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Jakob Hedenskog uh, from uh, Total Forsvarets Forskningsinstitut, the Total Defense Research Agency, some Swedish Defense Research Agency. Apologize to the Swedish government. Um, uh, also uh, 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 an expert on Ukraine, you have followed the country for a long time. And our own uh, Karina Shirokich, uh, a political scientist uh, and um, uh, who follows and works on uh, the uh, Ukrainian situation uh, here with us at UVI. Uh, you will uh, discuss and provide introductory remarks. Uh, You have about uh, 10 minutes each, after which we will have some very loosely structured Q&As, and then we also have the open discussion with the auditorium. Uh, Please remember that uh, it will be recorded, the sound, so uh, whatever uh, noise you make, uh, it will be uh, recorded, um, and as provided as potential evidence. So, uh, very welcome. Uh, Please, Katya, begin. On. It's on, yeah. Um, thank you. It's my great honor and pleasure to be here um, in the sunny Stockholm today to talk about Ukraine. And I'm thrilled to see such a huge audience and a massive interest in Ukraine. I am always pleased when, when uh, you know, people abroad um, are interested in, in our little country, which was not even on the map pretty much uh, in Europe uh, only some 20 years ago. Um, and indeed, we have um, a good um, a good discussion to have about Ukraine's uh, l- latest batch of elections and other po- political developments that we've had this year. And uh, the shifts that we've experienced have been quite tectonic. Um, as you are already aware, I'm sure, we've had two, two sets of elections. One is the presidential election this spring, um, and the other one is a parliamentary election on the 21st of um, July. Um, the the Presidential election, as you are well aware, were won by um, a complete novice in politics, a person who's, who's built a career being a comedian uh, with zero political experience, zero, zero political team, and yet he, uh, he um, broke records in Ukrainian political history um, and became president. He then um, lived up to his, um, 
extravagance and and his um, um, uh, eccentricity and uh, dismissed the parliament in, in, during his in inauguration speech. It's great fun. You should watch it. It's not as fun as his comedies, but still, it was very unexpected and uh, something and a move that um, nobody in Ukraine could uh, could could um, foresee because um, this w this is not a done thing. This is not something you do when you are a part of the political class. It just doesn't happen. So it came very unexpected. Um, three months on, we had uh, a parliamentary election, and again. We, we had a lot of precedence in this election because for the first time in Ukrainian recent in, in Ukrainian political independent political history, um, the same person, the same people got power in, as, as the president and presidential team and then in parliament. We only had one case like that before in 1999 when the election was rigged uh, by, by Leonid Kuchma, when the same team uh, or the same person got, got political power both in parliament and, and uh, the presidential powers. So this consolidation is quite unprecedented. And moreover, not only did he win, he, wa he won a clear majority in parliament. So he got 254 seats. Uh, we have, have a parliament that is now 423 seats uh, large. So he, he can vote pretty much any election, that, any law that he wants. Um, on top of that, a lot of uh, he political heavyweights dropped out, but that's another story. I won't go into those details. Um, this whole this whole scene with the two elections showed one very very clear trend: um, the eagerness for Ukrainians to have new faces in, pol in politics and the eagerness to do things the new way. I mean, by no means it's a, is it a new trend because after our latest revolution, the revolution of dignity, um, the the election campaign that was won by former President Poroshenko was also one with the same slogans, living the new way. However, he clearly failed to deliver and uh, was punished by that, uh, was punished in a political sense by the voters for it. Um, interestingly, this time um, uh, we had a fight not just for 5% threshold and to be able to get into parliament, every party has to cross the 5% threshold. But also for the 2.5% threshold, because for the first time ever, we have a law active in Ukraine when political parties, young political forces that have um, participated in the election and got 2.5% um, are getting public fin funding. And uh, for the first time, this law is gonna work, but it's, it's already backfiring because we have six um, parties who have crossed the 2.5% threshold. And some of them are extremely destructive, extremely, uh, extremely populist, and uh, some of them are anti-Ukrainian. Anti so there's a lot of debate in the society about this law not working, and there is more than one way why it's not working. But, but the fight was very fierce for, for 5% as well as 2.5%. So we, now we ended up with a record concentration of power um, with, with, within one political group. And this political group, of course, got to appoint a cabinet of ministers. And it's also uh, interesting that this time around, our, our whole political class is, has become very much younger. It's like a new generation coming to power. We have a president who is only 41 years old, younger than me, and it's terrible to think about. Um, we have uh, the, the parliament who is, uh, th that is also 41 years old on average, 41. It's very young for a parliament. We have a cap the youngest prime minister, I think, pretty much in Europe, maybe. Um, he's 35. And we have the average age of the cabinet, which is the youngest in Europe, which is 39. So it's, it's almost like a new generation suddenly seized power. Um, it's also interesting that the new cabinet comes from 
again, just like the president, most of them come from a very different background. They have no experience in politics, a lot of them. So the prime minister, is the f this is the first cabinet where there is no, nobody who you could pinpoint, with the exception of perhaps one minister, who is connected to any oligarchs. And this has been Ukraine's problem for, for 20 plus years, that we've had uh, um, you know, a very crooked political system where oligarchs pretty much got to appoint their own prime ministers or, or ministers and as a part of the very complex dealings and negotiations and quotas. So um, somebody, as somebody commented that nobody, nobody corrupt is now, has now entered the, the cabinet. Let's see how they exit. And I think that this is a good, uh, a good uh, kind of start for, for our new cabinet. We have uh, two ministers who have been recycled from the previous cabinet, and they, they are as different as cheese and chalk. We have, uh, we have um, Interior Minister Avakov, who is the oldest in the cabinet, both in, in the mental, from the mental point of view and then the age point of view, because he is a representative of that same crony uh, system that existed before. He has done a very poor job as an interior minister, and yet he almost got promoted to deputy prime minister, but, but was bumped down to just merely a minister. So he remains as minister of interior, and, and the second minister is Oksana Markarova, um, a great professional uh, coming from an investment, com investment community, one of the best ministers of finance in Ukraine um, for the last 20 plus years, and, and uh, very, very respected in the community. Lots of people got upcycled from, from, other, from other positions, um, like there was an NGO. Um, so so that although they're coming with no political experience, um, they come with policy-making experience, which is very, very new for Ukraine as well. Um, we had an office, we had an NGO working in Ukraine for the last few years called BRDO, Better Regulation Delivery Office. It was an NGO supported by the European Union and started by another reformist member of, of the previous government. And uh, our new prime minister, Alexei Goncharuk, and, and quite a few ministers, including some key ministers, like energy minister, come from this better regulation office. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing because, okay, they might not be experienced in politics, but they are very experienced in, in creating white books and green books about specific sectors of the economy that need fixing. Um, so the white books are, are basically essentially diagnosing what the problem is in that particular sector. And the green book is what kind of regulation we have to produce to fix those problems that we've diagnosed in the white book. So um, I can talk a lot about uh, what the prime minister is like, and maybe somebody will be interested um, to hear it, but I will move on to um, a sort of a slightly bigger picture. This is the first time in, we've had a very interesting transition from the previous government and the previous president into the new administration and the new government, which has also been very, very unique for Ukraine. Um, so previously what happened is, you know, the, pre the, the old person walks out of the office, the new, the new person walks in and, you know, you just sink or swim, figure it out on your own. So this time it was different because, first of all, um, all the ministries, or many key ministries, created transition books for their successors. And that is something that we have not, have not seen before. It's partly to do with like the sort of the growth, the mental growth of the political class and partly to do with the, uh, as the, one of the side effects of the reform of, of public governance that we've had in Ukraine, uh, which is ongoing, but it was a very positive effect. Um, we also, for the first time, 
In his concession speech, the previous president actually volunteered unlimited amount of his time to the new president or to the president-elect, saying that um, I, I'm happy to help you, I'm happy to, to donate my time and, and help you transition into the new role. Um, I'm not sure how sincere that was, and I'm certainly not sure that uh, the new president used that opportunity to, to transition um, smoothly, but, but the intent was there, it was declared publicly, and it is also something that had not happened before. Um, what, what we have also seen is the upcycling of um, people in, good people in ministries, like in some ministries people were in secondary or tertiary roles and moved up. Um, into higher positions, and, and um, the, the ministers, the outgoing ministers, received those new people with open arms, and and also made sure that that their support for the new ministers and and the new colleagues are is very public, and that um, the the messages delivered that the, all the good things, the reform things that started the the green shoots of reform will continue under the new um, under the new um, management. So I've pretty much run out of my time. Yeah, yeah. I think we should continue with the rest of the panel because I've gone through about a quarter of my notes. Jakob, <laughs> um, maybe you'd like to um, to continue, and you'll discuss a little bit more about the security situation and the current development there. Yes, thank you, Martin. Thank you for having me. Uh, I would also like to say something more about uh, foreign policy. Uh, although I think that uh, the main focus now for Ukraine and Zelensky is um, internal politics. Uh, um, for instance, what we've seen in the last days of speed of uh, laws in the Verkhovna Rada. There's an indication of that. But nevertheless, Zelensky has been quite active also on the international scene. He visited Brussels to meet with EU leaders. I also visited Merkel in Germany, Macron in France, Erdogan in Turkey, and he hosted Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu recently. Uh, he has also held important meetings with financial donor organizations, uh, very crucial for Ukraine, like International Monetary Fund, World Bank, um, and others. He visited Canada to meet with President Trudeau and uh, also met with the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada and called them back to return back to invest in their uh, country of origin. So uh, he's been very active on the international scene and so far he has, uh, his appearance has been rather successful. He has established a good impression there. He has not met with Putin though and the Russian leadership has not officially congratulated Zelensky on his victory uh, in the presidential elections. Uh, his background uh, is quite problematic for um, um, the Russian propaganda. He's a Russian-speaking Jew, uh, and uh, the Russian propaganda presents, uh, continues to present Ukraine as being run by a fascist junta built on anti-Semitic and anti-Russian sentiments. Um, Russia probably hoped for a good result in the parliamentary elections for the so-called pro-Russian parties in Ukraine, that is basically uh, opposition platform for life uh, and the opposition bloc, um, both of them in the hands of uh, pro-Russian oligarchs. Uh, but only the opposition platform for life, the, the, the first of the one I mentioned, uh, did um, uh, get into the parliament. It's the second biggest um, um, party in the parliament for the moment. 
so do, during the election campaign, prob Russia probably did not uh, want to test the, the new president and the unexperienced presidential administration by escalating the military conflict in Donbas, uh, since it uh, thought it might have hurt the results of the pro-Russian parties. But after the elections, Russia has adopted a sort of wait-and-see attitude towards Zelensky, waiting for him to deliver real concessions in the, to, to Russia, backed by the parliamentary majority that he now has. Uh, but the sort of escalating on a political level, uh, level occurred when Putin um, uh, gave the decree on uh, which gave, gave the inhabitants of occupied territories um, uh, fast track to Russian passport. That is basically similar to what Russia has given the people in uh, occupied territories of Georgia, the South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Uh, so far, Zelensky has not been uh, weak in the contact with Putin, what you might have expected with him being so uh, unexperienced. And um, during the presidential election campaign, he also he said that one of his priorities would be to negotiate peace in Donbas with Russia. And some statements uh, that he gave gave the impression that he was talking about situation in Donbas uh, as a civil war uh, in Ukraine rather than Russian military aggression to, against Ukraine and the war between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, in his inauguration speech, speech, he did not mention Russian aggression uh, once. And there were also older statements that uh, he was prepared to beg his knees for Putin that circulated in the election campaign in order to discredit him as a weak and naive and experienced, unexperienced pro-Russian candidate. But as a president, uh, he, as I mentioned, he has stood up firm in uh, the two telephone, con um, telephone calls, conversations that he had had with, with Putin. Uh, as far as we know, we don't uh, know exactly what was said, but that is what came out. Uh, he has claimed that he would protect the rights of Ukrainians, all Ukrainians, no matter where they are, and that there is no need to amend the Ukrainian constitution in order to give the occupied territories a special status. So, as it seems, reality has caught up with Zelensky as far as in the... the the, the war against Russia. Uh, the war in Donbas continues. There have been more than 13,000 dead, more than 30,000 injured since April 2014, more than 1.5 million internally displaced people. Uh, Russia is not interested in ending the conflict. It's, it's uh, quite the opposite, interested in keeping it, the conflict alive since it presents useful tool to Russia to keep Ukraine in the Russian sphere of interest, or at least keep Ukraine outside uh, further integration into NATO or the EU. Uh, a central feature of the Russian aggression against Ukraine is to keep a level of deniability. Although Putin has somehow uh, acknowledged at least once that there are Russian military in Ukraine, uh, it's still the official, official version is that this is a war in Ukraine, a civil war between Ukrainian armed forces and Ukrainian separatists, and that Russia is only prevent, preventing, uh, Russia is only giving humanitarian aid to the separatists and, and stands as a political um, 
it, it, it might help to to solution to to um, give a solution to the the conflict politically. Uh, the separatist forces constitute of two armed corpus, uh, one in the so-called uh, Donetsk uh, People's Republic and one in the so-called Luhansk People's Republic. They count together some 30,000 men. Most of them are recruited from the region, but uh, there are, are Russian high officers, Russian experts and specialists, and Moscow controls the order of battle. All imports, important decisions are taken in Moscow. Russia also controls the lo logistics, weapons, fuel and ammunition that is distributed to the troops from Russia. Uh, Russia continues to utilize uh, a genuine internal division in Ukraine that is politically, culturally, ethnically and, and religiously in order to maximize its influence and present Ukraine as a hopeless case for the international community. Uh, Russia is confident with its patience. Uh, it is convinced that Ukraine sooner or later will come back to brotherly Russia, than that the West will lose interest in Ukraine being occupied with its internal problems and split. Um, and also that uh, that Russia will be re-invited again uh, in, into the organization that it has been not attending for the last years, like what happened already in the Parliamentary Assembly of Council of Europe, that Russia was uh, re-invited. And also both President Trump and President Macron uh, committed, commented that Russia sooner or later will be uh, invited again to the G7. Based on this, um, I will give you three scenarios on the security situation in, um, in Donbass. More, I will not elaborate very much on them, it's more like food for thoughts. Uh, the first scenario is that uh, we will see more of the same, a low intensity conflict in Donbass for a long time. And perhaps that more uh, would, what happened in the Kerch Strait in November last year, uh, when um, Russian border guards open fire on Ukrainian ships, such incidents uh, will occur more, op more often. And this was the first time uh, when there was an open and, and documented attack on Russia and Ukraine without care of deniability. The second uh, scenario is a sort of Georgian way. After the Georgian Dreams um, uh, election win in 2012, they started a um, rapprochement with Russia, with the uh, that they wanted to, um, was the way to resolution of the territorial, territorial conflict and improve the country's economy. This has not been very successful in terms of conflict resolution, rather the opposite, and only partially successful in terms of improving the Georgian economy. And the third scenario is a widened conflict, which cannot be excluded, although not necessarily likely for the moment. This is something that Ukraine uh, has as a scenario in its military doctrine to prepare to full-scale Russian military aggression against Ukraine. Thank you. Um, right. That is a pleasure to see that so many people were interested in the seminar and decided to register. So welcome, everybody. Um, I was earlier asked to contribute on the question of uh, why actually people decided to give their votes, cast their votes for the... Um, 
President Zelensky and why did they decide to support his party? I think this is a question that um, many people thought of for quite a long period of time. I myself couldn't, uh, by myself, uh, reach any um, conclusive um, uh, kind of results. Uh, but today I'll try to present to you some recent uh, data uh, that has been collected recently um, in sociological pools. And so maybe we can together think of this explanation or try to find an explanation to, to this phenomenon and try to answer the question why did people support um, the president's party, party um, which is called the servant of the people, Rodu, in Ukrainian. So, and I, I would suggest that um, the explanation is rather threefold. Um, there is no simple answer to this question. Um, but trying to give a simple twist into that, I would say that two words and one name can explain these results. So these two words are war and TV, and the name is Poroshenko. So in the remaining 10 minutes, I'll try to explain what I mean by that. Um, and I'll, of course, uh, welcome your questions um, and comments if you disagree. So, um, for instance, if um, we take a look at the most recent polls, for instance, conducted by the Fund uh, of Democratic Initiatives in Ukraine, that actually is very fresh. It's only a few days um, old. So we can see that about 69% of the... Uh, supporters for President Zelensky that uh, they they voted for him to uh, bring new um, leadership into the country. So they voted for new people just to have new people. So this is the most popular answer among them. So 69% wanted a radical change. Um, also, 55% said that well, probably Zelensky won't because he's a new person. He's not engaged into any corruption schemes, etc. Um, and basically, that is something that people would, uh, would, would say as defining him, that he's not like the old corrupt elites. Um, the same reason, interestingly enough, enough would give uh, voters that supported other uh, parties. Uh, for instance, um, um, supporters of um, the uh, opposition platform that was named already, uh, they also supported this party as one of the reasons, because, well, um, they didn't want to support Poroshenko, they didn't want Poroshenko to win. So that is, that is uh, kind of, sheds a little bit of light on why people decided to, to support um, these uh, new um, kind of developments, this change. Another reason that is quite interesting, um, it is that actually TV is um, the most uh, influential source of political knowledge for a uh, majority of Ukrainians. In fact, it is 72, an average um, a percent of people who, percentage of people who actually get the uh, daily news from, uh, from the TV rather than other sources. Of course, these numbers, they vary depending on the age groups. Uh, the younger people are the, the less emphasis they place on the TV. Um, and more uh, kind of social media has been used, so um, other alternative kind of sources of information such as different news web pages. But still, TV composes majority of um, political interest, so to say. So 52% of people in age between 18 and 29, um, they, um, they rely on, on the TV in order to get political knowledge. And what we see, and what we try to, again, see what TV channels have um, 
uh, the most trust among people. So we can see that one plus one TV channel, um, channel that belongs to oligarch Kolomoisky. Um, people call him to be backing President Zelensky and his party. So this channel has um, the most trust among uh, people in Ukraine. So 53% actually stated that. And of course, depending on the party, these channels would vary. For instance, when we talk about um, the opposition platform, um, they name uh, electorate of this particular party, they name 112 channel as well as Inter and News One as main information sources when it comes to political news. But interestingly enough, I was really uh, surprised to see that 50% of um, Ukrainians, broadly, not only supporters of Zelensky or his party, but broadly, they, they watched actually his uh, TV series, Servant of the People. And 85% watched uh, 95th Quartal, his uh, com comedy show. So people knew him mostly from this uh, TV uh, kind of uh, um, images, so to say. And 65% of Zelensky's and his party's supporters actually watched the, um, the Servant of the People movie, right, or series, which is quite interesting. Um, it's quite reasonable to say that people might have received some impression of Zelensky as being an efficient uh, politician from that movie, uh, sadly enough. And, and after 100 days uh, of him being in the office, um, his support is stunning, it's 70%. So people do still support his actions. Um, they're quite positive about the latest developments, about uh, his behavior and behavior of his party. And um, so TV basically had a lot of impact on, um, on um, the, the results of this uh, election. And of course, well, this name that probably is a reason for, one of the reasons for these results is President Poroshenko. And of course, people were quite frustrated. Um, um, there is a lot of frustration and uh, voting for this new party uh, and the new president has been seen as uh, an, a counteraction to fight back, in a way, the old corrupt elites, quote-unquote. And when it comes to the expectations, um, when coming to the, to the, uh, when casting the votes, uh, actually people name uh, peace as one of the main expectations from the uh, new parliament, new government, and the new president. People, 71%, in fact, say that this is the major expectation, which is kind of reasonable given the the war that um, Jakob nicely described. Um, also, people expect um, the newly formed government and the president and the, the parliament to um, decrease the tariffs for the domestic facilities, um, also to fight the corruption. 31% um, think that that is essential, in fact. Um, but in this context, given, given these three reasons that I outlined today, I think that there are also major dangers that are coming from... Um, from this situation, given people's preferences, but also um, actions of the of the president and um, the party, uh, the servant of the people party. So I would say that um, this this very positive attitude of uh, supporters of uh, Zelensky's party and and his um, and his supporters 
Um, this period might come to the end once people will see actually their bills for for the gas uh, in October 15, I think. It's time one day turning on the gas uh, kind of hitting in Ukraine. So that might be the day when people will start being more um, negative or realistic. Uh, uh, so that might come to an end, or kind of the, his popularity might decrease, um, which would be normal probably in this station. 70% of support, that is too high for any country, I would say, probably. Um, and I think that another danger that he might face, or Ukraine might face in this, in this uh, context, it is that, well, when Poroshenko was the president and he didn't have, um, so to say, a majority, parliamentary majority, uh, in the parliament, um, he, he could always say to his international counterparts uh, and partners that, well, we cannot necessarily change the status of the occupied territories because, well, I can't control the, the parliament. The parliament makes a decision. This decision won't be, won't be taken by the parliament. Whatever I propose, they, they will deliberate on that and they will have their opinions about that. But in the current situation, it really seems that, well, at least for how it looks now, um, it really seems that the parliament is doing very much what the president wants them to do. Um, having parliamentary majority for Zelensky looks like it is rather easy to, to push through uh, whatever legislative initiative he has or draft law. So that could mean in the context of um, external relations of Ukraine with international organizations, European countries, but also Russia, it could be that for him, maneuvering will be much more difficult than it was for Poroshenko. Then maybe Zelensky wouldn't have this excuse. He wouldn't be able to say, well, I cannot force the parliament because clearly he can. The third danger or um, possible scenario, um, very hypothetical as for now, but still, it is that it looks like he's trying to concentrate lots of um, powers, legislative powers as well which he's not supposed to have. Um, and he is, well, judging by the uh, draft laws that he has already uh, submitted, not he, but his office um, submitted, um, it looks like he will try to uh, get more powers, and, uh, to get more powers in, in uh, appointing, for instance, uh, heads of anti-corruption institutions, which is very questionable move, I would say because these institutions wouldn't be uh, de facto independent, um, and the Euro independent, they will be dependent on the president if he has the powers to remove and appoint the hats. He also tried to, well, at least one of the um, kind of um, draft laws is to um, also grant him powers to appoint a person for the state investigatory um, institution, the Javne Bureau So these moves will make some of the Ukrainian very weak institutions even weaker. And in the context of the EU and European integration, something that he, um, uh, he decided to continue. Um, so it really looks like that could be in danger because that is one of the uh, conditions for the visa-free travels that Ukraine has recently obtained. That is that the institutions will be independent, they will be functioning. And um, there were kind of a few of blocks of conditions, but that was one of the blocks, right? The anti-corruption institutions. So hypothetically, if this block collapses, potentially it could lead to revoking of visa-free travels. Um, 
that will be a big um, uh, a big damage for him um, because this particular achievement of Ukrainian diplomacy has been very much appreciated by the citizens. And lastly, I should say um, that uh, this concentration of of uh, of powers that are not supposed to to be um, in his hands, so to say. Um, it is very dangerous development. Um, Ukrainian parliamentary system is not that strong. Uh, the parliament uh, or elements of the parliament, some parts of the uh, uh, the parliament, they were controlled by some groups, business, big business groups. There were attempts to control the parliament, etc. And having uh, these developments will fully destroy the parliament, I think. And even if the Zelensky wants to have these extra powers in order to very quickly uh, solve some issues that will make um, damage to the institutions that um, Ukraine will have troubles to recover from, that would undermine um, legitimacy of these institutions as well in the future. And then whoever comes after him um, will be feeling very much uh, like doing the same. Thank you all of you for very uh, interesting and analytically, I say, um, have to say, thick uh, presentations or introductory remarks. Um, so in the last few days, we've seen uh, uh, um, quite some activity in, in the uh, uh, parliament uh, in Kiev. Um, there was yesterday the new legislation on uh, revoking immunity for MPs, uh, for example, that was framed at least as a liberal reform, um, but uh, you, you mentioned also some risks that you see in the current political situation. Um, uh, Katya, would you like to say something more on this situation and the implication of the fact that the president has uh, a majority in parliament and, and your interpretation of the legislative activity we have seen? Yes, um, again, when you look at the formal sort of um, developments in Ukraine, right? The youngest parliament ever, the youngest president ever, liberal agenda that is being spouted everywhere through all the channels, uh, you know, um, a, a wonderful um, government with lots of credentials, Western education, um, reform, um, policy making, etc. You kind of start asking, is this too good to be true? And uh, the answer is yes, of course. Um, because uh, as uh, as Karina has already stated, it's uh, it's never a good idea to to give too much power to the same person or to the same group of individuals. And in fact, um, there was a very succinct story in the Economist this week. It wasn't about Ukraine, but it resonated to the point that I actually copied um, a small uh, a small quote. Um, and I will read it to you. Take Hungary, where Fidesz, the ruling party, has used the parliamentary majority to capture regulators, dominate business, control the courts, buy the media, and manipulate the rules for elections. Um, Viktor Orban does not have to break the law because he can get parliament to change it instead. And pretty much that, that sums it up for Ukraine. I mean, um, the legal initiatives that we have seen um, Zelensky come, come up with um, are extremely similar to that. He is uh, limiting, um, giving sticks and carrots to anti-corruption agencies. On one hand, he is proposing that they, they get something that they couldn't get under President Poroshenko and his majority, and I, by the way, disagree that he didn't control the majority. Um, he, whenever he needed to pass legislation, he, he did. Um, 
so he, on one hand, he's offering them a carrot in the form of, okay, tapping powers. You wanted to tap everyone without the SBU, the Secret Service, being involved. Here you go, your independent tapping powers. But at the same time, he's going, okay, but I'm going to appoint the head of the uh, National Anti-Corruption uh, anti Bureau and, uh, the na and the National Investigative Bureau. Um, we have a lot of warning signs re re regarding procedure. I mean, this new lot of in power, well, clearly they're not very experienced, etc. but they ignore procedure, which is um, not only um, an easy way for a lot of um, unfriendly or oppositional forces to challenge the decisions taken by the current parliament and, and the president, uh, but also dangerous from the democratic point of view because democracy is about rules. And if you if you just come in uh, like, a, like a bull into a china shop and this is what you do to the rules, it's never a good idea because uh, then, then what, are we, what, do, what do we stand for what, if we don't follow rules? Uh, your ideas might be the greatest in the world, but you still have to do your, you know, go through the procedure. Um, the, we have a lot of um, some signs about unsavory appointments. And the biggest one that is being talked about is clearly um, Andriy Bogdan, the head of presidential office, who has uh, a long history of connections with, um, with a, a prominent oligarch who essentially has been mentioned, Igor Kolomoisky, who was the backer of uh, President Zelensky um, and, and, in fact, a business partner for President Zelensky for many, many years. And he's already, you know, he, he's basically the evil genius of politics. And uh, as one, one person um, I spoke to who is a, a very senior, sort of prominent um, person in one of the international organizations that cooperates with Ukraine very closely, he was saying, when I first met Zelensky, the competence gap was very, very obvious and very, very clear. And not just in him, but in the whole team. And Bogdan, his head of staff, was the only adult in the room. So he was running the show. And, and that is always very dangerous, especially when um, you understand that, that um, the principles that run this person are very um, questionable. Um, we have um, also... Um, have a lot of questions about the relationship between between Zelensky and, and Igor Kolomoisky um, and how that is going to develop into the future. We have also seen um, a very interesting phenomenon when a lot of evil geniuses of Ukrainian politics have actually started returning to Ukraine, who were afraid of, of returning but have made it back and, and have not been punished or are under no danger of going to jail. Um, you know, and uh, one of them is Andriy Partnov, the former uh, deputy head of pres presidential administration under Viktor Yanukovych, who ran after the revolution. We we have seen um, the late, lately Raisa Bogatyrova, who's a former um, health minister um, uh, charged with corruption for public procurement of drugs, who has made like literally millions and tens of millions of dollars off public money by depriving sick people of drugs as, as, uh, as a health minister. She's now back and walking free. And uh, these are just the two examples, one, one of the early ones and one, one of the most recent ones. So, so we, we are seeing a lot of dangerous things happening and, um, and um, we hope that um, the institutions that are currently being created, including the, the cabinet of ministers, will eventually gain enough strength 
to understand that their role as an independent institution is very important for democracy and that loyalty is secondary to that. But we are yet to see any signs of that. Very interesting. Uh, uh, I, um, maybe you'd like to add something else on that, uh, but briefly. Yes, thank you. Um, on this particular uh, point that you brought up about the um, revoking uh, immunity uh, of MPs. Um, that is a very populistic move, I would say, because that is something that um, people strongly support. They believe it is, it is a good move because they want to punish right, MPs. They're sick with them. Um, they have good reasons for that. But at the same time, in a country when we don't have any international courts and the decision can be made wherever, but not in the courts themselves, that also can be very dangerous because all of a sudden whoever makes a decision can use the courts, not free court system, to, um, to push through the legislative change that this person might want or need. So I would say that this is extremely dangerous in a country that doesn't have independent court system. Interesting. Um, sure. I'd like uh, also to, to talk a little bit about the lifting the parliamentary immunity. I mean, it's a massively popular move in Ukraine because we have seen time and again that parliament has become, be, became in the last 20 years um, a refuge for criminals, uh, people who are um, doing all kinds of illegal things, starting from illegal uh, you know, amber mining to uh, corrupt procurement and, and defense. Um, and they land in parliament and nobody can prosecute them because the parliament has to vote for that to happen. So um, it's not, Zelensky did, did not, and his party obviously, did not remove the, the whole of immunity. He removed, they removed uh, immunity for criminal prosecution. Um, the article in the constitution that, that guarantees political independence and political uh, free speech and, and participation, etc., cetera, for, for, for politicians, uh, is still there. So it's just one article of the Constitution was amended and, and another one was not. However, um, there, are, there is a lot of criticism for that move, despite the fact that it's been desperately needed. You know, that, that some sort of limits on um, criminal prosecution um, had to be uh, removed, but probably not the whole thing. Interesting. Um um, there was another reform um, uh, already uh, in the last, well, six months of um, Poroshenko's tenure, uh, which was uh, heralded as a, or it was sort of, it was a big change. Uh, and it was the uh, autocephaly, the independence of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Uh, now, uh, Jakob, you mentioned a little bit about the Russian-Ukrainian relations. Uh, what has been the impact about, not a, not a full year into the, uh, independence of a, uh, or the creation of an uh, independent Ukrainian church, but almost a full year. Um, has there been any uh, sort of, has that impacted the domestic Ukrainian situation in any way or the relationship between Russia and Ukraine? Well, it does, uh, the, the, the Ukrainian uh, Orthodox Church is now established as a United Ukrainian Orthodox Church, but it's of, of course has given Russia sort of um, uh, a sort of um, uh, way to, to attack uh, uh, Ukraine also on religious matters, 
uh, and uh, to sort of split of Ukrainian of in the, in the Ukraine uh, religiously. So um, it's a sort of a religious um, uh, hybrid warfare against Ukraine. Uh, I don't know if this really has had had an, had an impact or success in that way, but uh, that might. Uh, um, Katja or Karina know much more about, but uh, it is certainly something that is very upset, has upset Russia, Russian leaders, leadership, political leaders, and, and church leaders, of course. Um, so, um, yes, it's going on. Katja, would you like to shed some further light, or maybe, or else we could move. Continue yeah, it's discussion. interesting. I mean, Ukraine, obviously, according to the constitution, we are a secular state, <coughs> and uh, pol and religion doesn't often make it into politics. But this time around was different, um, and religion uh, featured very prominently during the election campaign because Poroshenko, uh, instead of his previous liberal agenda and promise of a new life, he he was running on a very conservative slogan: um, army, language, and faith. And uh, one of the big things that that happened was was this uh, the the the, uh, the granting of uh, independence to the Ukrainian Church, which sounds like a very you know very good progressive move, and it is because Ukra the Ukrainian Church has been fighting for uh, for centuries for independence from from Russia Russian patriarchy and being recognized as 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 an independent entity that serves its own people. But um, it's never as that simple in Ukraine, of course. Uh, even before the granting of uh, autocephaly, Ukraine had uh, three different uh, Orthodox churches. It had the Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarchate, which is the, which was the biggest and subordinate to Moscow. It had uh, the, the the splintered off uh, Ukrainian Patriarchate Kiev. Uh, 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 rather Ukrainian Orthodox Kiev Patriarchate, and another one was um, um, an independent Orthodox Church of Ukraine. So, and now we have four different types of churches, uh, Orthodox churches in Ukraine, the specific confession. So it's a very, very complex process because uh, uh, several of those churches were supposed to unite, and then uh, the communities, the religious communities, were supposed to actually take a vote on whether they're going to move to the new um, to the new church that was just granted independence by um, Bartholomew. Um, and that process is still happening, but it's happening very slowly. And it's also not very straightforward because we, you, we read about some communities voting to, uh, to join the new church and then voting to join the Moscow Patriarchate again. So it's very, uh, and, and because it's not election time, nobody talks about it anymore. So we're just waiting for the next election to happen to find out <laughs> the scale of, of what happened. Um, we are approaching the end of the seminar, in fact, uh, and it's late in the afternoon. And I suggest that we thank our panelists with a round of applause. So thank you very much. Find us on www.ui.se. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. <laughs>